The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about saving Indian River Lagoon on the Atlantic side of Florida, and I'm talking with the Indian River Keeper. Marty Baum. Hi, Marty. How are you, Doc? How's everything? Good. It's pretty cold and snowy up here in Cambridge, Mass. I wish I was down your way. Uh, I'm sporting around in short pants. Yeah, you always are, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So tell us about what the um, Indian River Keeper does and what's your program. All right. Um, I'm the third in the line of Indian River Keepers. Our program is about... 12 years old now, um, my mission is, the mission of the Indian River Keeper is to protect and restore the waters of North America's most diverse estuary, the Indian River Lagoon, its tributaries, fisheries, and habitats through advocacy, enforcement, and citizen action. Um, uh, my organization is one of 206 that belong to the Waterkeeper Alliance. And that is a global environmental movement uniting some 206 waterkeeper organizations around the world and focusing citizen advocacy on the issues that affect our waterways, from pollution to climate change. Um, Our waterkeepers, we patrol more than 100,000 miles of streams and rivers and coastlines uh, on six continents. Here in Florida, we have five uh, waterkeepers, and we represent more than 4,000 members uh, throughout the state. And essentially, we were part scientist, teacher, legal advocate. Uh, we combine firsthand knowledge of our waterways uh, with a commitment to, you know, the rights of the communities and to the rule of law um, pertaining to environmental issues and water quality and things like that. Um, on the water, in the classroom, in the courtroom, um, wherever we, we can, we speak for the waters, you know, that, that we defend, and we have the backing of our local community and the collective strength of uh, the Waterkeeper Alliance, which, you know, has just thousands upon thousands of members. Um, yes, this is really excellent. A lot of people may have first learned about the Riverkeeper programs from the work of Robert Kennedy up in the Hudson River. Well, that's where it all began. In um, 1966, uh, a group of fishermen and a and a, and a folk singer, Pete Seeger, got together, and they were tired of people polluting the Hudson River. It was completely dead. So they nosed around, and they found a, um, an obscure federal document that promises us, as American citizens, clean water. And the caveat in this was that if someone is polluting this body of water, 
and you take them to court, you get 50% of whatever fine is, uh, you know, put on these people. Well, they did that. They uh, they found a four-inch pipeline from Penn Central depositing uh, petroleum 24 hours a day into the Hudson. They took it on. They won. And instead of taking the money and running with it, 250 lawsuits later, the Hudson River became the poster child for restoration. Well, this being the 60s, uh, of course, a lot of organizations, something keeper, uh, bayou keeper, lake keeper, you know, river keeper, all popped up all over the place. Um, but the, everything was all disjointed. Uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, who, who's an, a clean water advocate, he started looking around and he decided to contact some of these groups and see if they wouldn't be willing to put together a charter and become a united voice. And um, he found some takers, and that was the beginning of the Waterkeeper Alliance. Um, uh, we were franchise number 84, and there's, yesterday we, we uh, grew by two, so we're now 206 organizations. Uh, wow. Yeah. And you said that there are five different uh, keepers in Florida. Uh-huh. Can you name them? Well, we have Lisa Reinemann up on the St. John's River. Uh, we have Dan Tonnemeyer over in Apalachicola Bay. Uh, Justin Bloom, Suncoast, uh, that's over uh, Lee County, Charlotte County over there. Um, let's see, we have Alexis Siegel down in Biscayne Bay. And uh, I'm the junior of the group. Uh, we're not the junior program, but I am the newest of the water keepers. I was selected uh, the end of last September, so I'm relatively new on the job. But, um, you know, it's it's been an interesting uh, thing. I the chance to sit around with scientists, and uh, I learn all kinds of very interesting things. I'm intellectually stimulated. There's plenty to do for advocacy. You know, yeah. No matter how hard you, you think you got things under control, uh, things pop up and uh, become a threat to the environment. Uh, we just had a bad run of luck here in Florida with uh, the Department of Environmental Protection versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Right. We'll get back to that in a minute. But... Um... <laughs> Uh, it was really nice of you to take me around, you know, the Indian River Lagoon back in January, uh, and really get into the muck of it all and stuff. And I was surprised by how far your family roots go back in the area. Well, I'm a sixth-generation Floridian. Um, I, my family has been on the lagoon continuously at least since 1868. And, and that grandfather I can find in the 1835 Volusia County Census, uh, uh, Sandpoint, where he was on the lagoon, it was in Volusia County then, but I don't really think he was this far south. There was a little issue of the Second Seminole War there in the middle somewhere that uh, kind of... Yeah, kind of kept you separated. Right. Um, however, um, I am distantly related to uh, Colonel Pierce, so there is a Fort Dix City on the lagoon uh, that's named after one of my family members, so... Um, you know, we've, we've been born here, we've died here, it's been our highway, our supper table, our recreation... Um, and, and I get a chance to give something back after, you know, more than 140 years, and I take that pretty serious. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now tell us, why does Indian River Lagoon have the greatest diversity of animal life of any estuary? Well, the first and foremost thing is because it's 156 miles long, and it straddles uh, the line in between tropical and temperate. Uh, that line falls generally around Vero Beach, but it seems to be moving north um, as our red mangrove 
is moving north in the Mosquito Lagoon, uh, clear up to uh, New Smyrna Beach. So the winters are, are not as cold as they once were. We we're long overdue for a freeze. Uh, so, you know, things are moving north a little bit. Plus we have, um, you know, along with that, um, we have the right amount of fresh water naturally um, coming into the saltwater environment and mixing. So we have a, a good estuary. Um, Dr. Grant Gilmore dropped a dot in the center of the St. Lucie Inlet and came out 10 miles and drew a circle, and they did a study. And inside that circle, 20 miles wide, they found 800 species of fish. Um, That's the most diverse fish circle in all of the continental United States. Now, not far away from there, um, they drew a half a mile circle and studied it, and that study right there at the northwest corner of uh, Sailfish Point uh, earned us the designation of the most diverse estuary um, in, in all of North America. We have more than 400 species of fish and just thousands of different animals and birds and this and that, uh, five different kinds of seagrass meadows, uh, you know, five different kinds of mangroves if you want to in- include, uh, you know, your silver and uh, green oaks and stuff. Mm. So it, it's really diverse. Uh, it, and it was it was better once upon a time. Um, for the last 100 years or so, we've been killing the lagoon with the death of a thousand little cuts. Every little thing that we've done has added up, and um, finally there are just so many people impacting the lagoon now that it is on the verge of collapse everywhere, and it is in a, a, a full collapse north of Vero. So things are pretty grim uh, right at the moment. We don't seem to have the political will to do anything about it. Um, Florida just took over water quality standards, so um, our water is not properly being protected anymore as the citizens aren't. So this is a tough deal. Um, The good news is uh, last night the city of Rockledge passed a meaningful urban fertilizer ordinance and joined Martin County, Souls Point, and Vero Beach uh, in enacting fertilizer ordinances trying to reduce the stormwater nutrient load um, that is causing the algae blooms in the, in, you know, throughout the lagoon, but specifically in the northern lagoon, where we have lost uh, some 35,000 acres of seagrass in two years. Uh, and that's a tragedy. That that's a, tragedy. a huge success. I was talking on an earlier program with Chris Costello, and we were gearing up to, um, or she was gearing up to go to Rock Ledge, and, and you know, it turned out to just be a uh, a delay and not the, the vote, but congratulations. Um, I didn't have a lot to do with that one. That was mostly uh, Chris. Well, congratulations, Kelly, Florida, uh, for, for, yeah, for the people of Rock Ledge. That was smart of them. Well, it's a, it's a good victory, and we needed one. Uh, yeah. We really did. Uh, you know, we went up to Brevard and we lost 4-1. to one. Um, it, It's not easy when the state supplies the the, the fertilizer companies with protection with their studies and with their, their co-sponsors and their, you know, it, it's really hard to beat them. It is. They it have... is remarkable because two years ago, you know, I was helping with uh, Martin County and, you know, the commissioner, Patrick Hayes, managed to get all the other commissioners to pass this good ordinance. And the ordinance has three parts to it that you should, you know, respect the setbacks, don't fertilize close to the water, you should use at least 50% slow-release nitrogen and take a fertilizer holiday from June 1st to September 30th. And so he was able to get, you know, all the commissioners on board. And then, you know, I thought that um, 
the chairs of uh, Brevard and St. Lucie County were, you know, following suit. You know, they thought, oh, yeah, we'll do this. And both of them got hammered, you know. Everyone but them voted against it, which goes to your issue of uh, outside influence or something. And for me, it means that the Ocean River Institute, working with Indian River Lagoon Keeper and others, um, needs to build a broader-based constituency, a broader-based coalition of groups. Uh, and ultimately, as you know, decision-makers will listen to a majority of their constituents. So we just got to keep at it to build more people, I guess. Well, we've been working on that. Um, uh, Doug Grayville, who belongs to the Yale Club up in Vero, um, yes. you know, every year they, they have a, um, a specific thing that they do for the community that they're in. And this year it was uh, in support of the Indian River Lagoon. And he opened up with um, the uh, Harbor Branch Symposium, where all the scientists get together and discuss what they've learned over the last year. Uh, he opened that up with uh, uh, Dr. I mean, excuse me, Sir Peter Crane, um, who is the chair of the forestry environmental stuff at Yale University. And it was a wonderful way to, to, to begin the symposium. But yes. of interest, of interest um, a couple of he and a couple of, of, of his friends, um, they have the same kind of vision that I have, is creating an Indian River coalition, uh, a unified voice from one end to the other. And we've all been working, you know, towards that, um, you know, the Marine Resources uh, uh, Council is on board. Uh, Rivers Coalition is on board. We've got Florida Oceanographic and Orca and Smithsonian and, and Harbor Branch and the Indian River Lagoon National Estuary Program. Um, there's a lot of good things starting to happen, but until the political will exists to actually make the improvements in water quality, um, you know, nothing's going to happen. But exactly. that's the way to get the political will to follow, is to build a big unified voice so that it's undeniable. Well, Bravo. You know, now, um, do we want to talk a little about the EPA or some of the problems that you have uh, in the north part of the lagoon? Well, I'd like to keep on that for a second. Um, yeah. You know, we've lost nearly half of all of our seagrass. Um, for those people who don't know, a seagrass meadow is one of the most diverse ecosystems on all of the planet. It's up there with rainforest and tropical reefs uh, for biological diversity. Uh, for instance, I can take a one square inch of, uh, of sandy or silty uh, bottom, lagoon bottom, and in it I will discover a couple thousand organisms. If I take that same one square inch and put two blades of seagrass in it, I have several hundred thousand creatures living in it. Wow, so, an order of ten, a magnitude of ten or something. Yes, uh, we're talking 40,000 fish per acre um, and, and all of the biodiversity that that, that reflects. Uh, not only do you have the blades of grass, but they're like highways for, for epiphytic algae which attach themselves, and then all these little crustaceans and crabs run up and down these blades of grass eating, and then, of course, other things like pigfish, pinfish, and mullet, you know, feed on that. So it's a very diverse and very rich, biologically dense ecosystem, and we've lost half of all of that. So now all of our, our apex predators, uh, our, our, our dolphin, our bottlenose dolphin, they're having to move. There's no more food. So... Of the three pods in the lagoon, um, they're now all crowded into about a, a 20 or 25-mile stretch. Uh, oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, and so there's going to be issues amongst them because they're turf creatures, you know, like most are. Oh, so um, they, yeah, they get conflict, turf wars or something. Right. We've lost 53 manatees since July, 20 in the last month, and we don't know why. Um, the supposition is they've lost their seagrass because they have. There's no more to eat, and they're eating algae. They were found drowned with bellies full of algae. So. Ooh. Yeah, and, and so they're starving and they're eating whatever they can, and it's not supplying them the nutrients they need. And you said how many dead manatees in this year? Fifty-three here. Now that's not including the hundred and twenty we've lost to red tide on the Florida West Coast. This is us. And, this is and the Atlantic Doc, Coast, not the Gulf Coast, right? This is Indian River Lagoon. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Doc, the scary thing is here that I had to read about this in a Tampa newspaper two days ago. Nobody on the lagoon knew about this except FWC, I guess, and they weren't talking. If there had been one prop mark in that manatee, it would have been on the front page of the newspaper. They'd have been screaming and hollering about it. But because hmm. it was an environmental issue, nobody talked, and we had to accidentally discover this. Um, and, you know, there's a straight-line correlation between nutrient loads, stormwater discharges, urban fertilizer, that's us, the people, fertilizing and, and this stuff running into our waters. And then it creates algae blooms, and uh, that kills back the seagrass, and that changes the feeding habits of the manatees, and now they're dead. Oh, dear. Marty, we're going to take a short break and come back and talk more about um, how we, what we can do to save manatees, save dolphins, and save the seagrass in Indian River Lagoon. Sounds great. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Drop me in the water, water, water. 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about saving Indian River Lagoon, which is on the Atlantic side of Florida. Marty, how many miles north and south goes the lagoon? It's uh, 156 miles. It goes from Jupiter Inlet to the south to uh, Ponce Inlet to the north. Which is just south of Cape Canaveral? Uh, no, that's north of Cape Canaveral. It's just just south yeah. of St. Augustine. So that gives us a sense of, of the big, huge estuary. And you are the Indian River Keeper, Marty yes. Baum. And how can people learn more about your work? Um, probably one of the easiest ways would be to uh, go to my Facebook page. Just Google up uh, Indian River Keeper. You know, that's two words. Indian and River Keeper is a single word. Um, and from there, I have all kinds of articles and things up, uh, uh, things of interest, uh, links to other places, other water keepers, other environmental issues, um, sometimes just pictures of stuff. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely in love with Indian River Lagoon, and you know, I have some pretty cool pictures that involve sunrises and dolphins playing with snook and things like that on the, on the page. So, and it gets better as I get unlazy and post them up. <laughs> and people can reach you there, too, right? Yes, they can. So that's an easy way to reach Marty Baum. Um, and so when I go down to, um, I go down to Stewart, Florida a lot, and uh, I am always, always love seeing the pelicans coasting around and hanging out and stuff. How are the pelicans doing down there? Well, along with the manatees, the 53 manatees that we've lost since July, and I, I just have to say it again, and the 20 in the last month, that's almost one a day. Um, we've also lost nearly 200 pelicans, and we don't know why. They're very emancipated. They're very laden with parasites. But uh, otherwise, uh, they're just more or less starving to death. Uh, there's, there's no, you know, somebody suggested, uh, you know, botulism, but that, that kills quickly, and it doesn't starve them over time. These, are, these things are being impacted over time. And, you know, I know that their food sources are getting skinnier, but they're able to, to get away. For instance, uh, about three weeks ago, for the first time in years, the white pelican colony that lives at Sebastian uh, found its way down to the Fort Pierce Inlet probably because there's nothing up there left to eat. There's no more seagrass around the Sebastian Inlet where they have historically, you know, hunted and, and you know, fed themselves and, and, and roosted at night. So things are changing pretty dramatically. Um, the, the birds and the cormorants, there's a, we've lost some cormorants, we've lost some, uh, uh, some bottlenose dolphins, um, and the impact is greater than just the lagoon and the economics here um, directly related to the lagoon, we have one of the finest winter offshore fisheries in the world right here. Stewart is the sailfish capital of the world. Uh, we set records down in Palm Beach and out of Jupiter and, and the St. Lucie last year for a number of sailfish caught. It was fabulous. Mm. Boats were catching 10 and 12 and 15 each. It was unbelievable. And, you know, that's 
that's one of the most beautiful fish in all of the planet to, to see fighting a billfish when they're, you know, the neon's popping and the, their, their sail is up and they're jumping and slaking their head and, ah, oh, it's just spectacular. Well, those and the, 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 um, the, the uh, a kingfish tournament, the, you know, the big kingfish people, they come yeah. in for tournaments. We have great wahoo fishing. Uh, all of these things, it, it's a great fishery, but it is being impacted. Um, the only reason we have this fishery in the wintertime is because our pigfish, our pinfish, and our mullet go out to the inside of the Gulf Stream and spawn. And that's what brings all of these fish here. Well, that, that has, you know, half of all of that available resource uh, coming out of the Sebastian Inlet is now gone, and we're pretty severely impacted at the southern end because of the Okeechobee discharges we had. So right now the only healthy inlet and seagrasses are all around the Fort Pierce Inlet. So... This has changed things offshore. We've had an awful lot of sharks, uh, not the migratory ones like the spinners and stuff that we see every year, but other things. Um, they're all uptight on the shore. They're, they're at our inlets. Um, the scientists speculate that they're not finding their normal food out there. And as in, in support of that, I spoke to a, a charter boat captain who's been doing this for more than 30 years, and he told me, he says, Marty, I, I, one season I'll, I'll get one, the next season I'll get two, the next season I'll get one. He says, and that's the way it's been for 30 years until this year. This year he had more than a dozen sharks come up and hit a trolled bait. That wow. means that, Yeah, that means that their, their normal food source that is, you know, subsurface and down there slow moving doesn't exist, and they're coming up and having to expend the energy to hit a, a fast-moving bait, you know, for them. So yeah. they, things have changed, and... The sad part of this is cause and effect is often separated by years, and this, of course, um, gives the, the we want to be able to pollute and do whatever we want people, you know, plenty of ammunition. You can't prove that we caused this because it takes two years for it to happen, you know, the, the results of this. So it's been an uphill battle. Um, some of the organizations, uh, like ORCA, for instance, uh, they've developed some really good, monitor programs and sediment testing programs. Uh, they've hired some toxicologists uh, and, and some people that, are, that, uh, that do isotopes as their specialty. Uh, so we're trying to um, atomically connect some of these pollutants with their source from the algae in the lagoon. And, and if we can find a smoking gun, then we can take them all to court, federal court, and put a stop to it. Um, but, you know, until we have the, the, the straight forward airtight science here to back us up, uh, it would just be a waste of time. So for now, we have to affect political leaders and try to go at it that way. And um, right now, the state of Florida is not being represented in Tallahassee. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency, can I, can I go into that? Is that all right? Yeah, let's go to that. Well, wait, I want to mention that um, I was uh, walking the hills of um, a beacon. Uh, no, I was in Washington talking to senators and congressmen with Terry Gibson. You know Terry? Of course I know Terry. He's on my court. Yeah. So Terry and I were going door-to-door -to, -door to these congressmen saying, listen, please appropriate some money, like $10 million or anything, for regional ocean partnerships, planning partnerships. Because like you said, we've got to get these diverse interests, we've got to just get together and speak in one voice and plan accordingly. So it's, it takes a lot of work, but this is, this is the, second, the flip side of your local efforts of having um, 
lots of people speaking up locally, is to have knowledgeable people like Terry and me, you know, banging on the doors up there and saying, yeah, I know you got a lot of calls for the 2014 appropriations. However, you know, this is a good deal, you know, for $10 million because um, you were indicating the value of the sport fishing and so forth off of Indian River Lagoon is just phenomenal. The lagoon itself generates $3.72 billion into the local economies, and that doesn't include the offshore fisheries. You know, yeah. that, uh, and, and a lot of that is dual purpose in this and that, but it's an enormous amount of money. And then you have to take into consideration that the property values are a lot higher because it is what it is. Uh, one of the most beautiful bodies of water, you know, anywhere in North America. Uh, and, and, you know, and it's dying right in front of us, and we're, we're just not being... Protect. No, that's right. And, and with me and Terry were uh, the head of or near the top of the uh, lobstermen in Maine and the lobstermen of Massachusetts. And their point to the senators and congressional representatives was, look, please support this national ocean planning effort because we fishermen shouldn't have to go and complain about every single development that comes up, every single group that wants to change something, you know, or build something. You know, we should get it all under one umbrella so that we can have a voice at the table and that the entrepreneurs can know up front what are the issues they've got to deal with and stuff. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of us that aren't, we aren't being represented. No matter who we elect, we're just simply not being represented. Uh, and, and that has to change. And probably the only way that's going to change is for a bunch of people to get thrown out of office. And, and, and Doc, i got to tell you, I, I promised the four commissioners who voted against the, the fertilizer ordinance in Brevard, I told them, I said, this time next year, when your citizens have lost hundreds of jobs and millions of dollars, they're going to be looking for heads. They're going to want to know why we didn't do something when we could, and I'm going to offer them yours. I'm going to make sure that they know that you have the chance to make a difference, and instead of taking the lead and, and doing your best to help the, the system recover and restore itself, you threw us all under the bus. Now, as a nonprofit, I can't tell you who to vote for, but I can sure generate a report card, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, and who better than the Indian River Keeper? who has not turned a blind eye on what's happening, the death and decay and destructions that are happening in Indian River Lagoon. I mean, this is the first time, you know, on radio that we've heard not only the death of, you know, extensive uh, seagrass areas, but also 58 manatees and suffering dolphins and, you know, changes in commercial, you know, this is, you know, People turn a blind eye to the big picture and think, oh, it's not a problem if I just ignore it or keep it fractured in the little bits. You know, our dolphin, we, we have three distinct pods of bottlenose dolphin in, in the lagoon, and they don't hardly ever go outside into the ocean, and the ocean ones hardly ever come into the lagoon. Right. Uh, they're separate little communities. We lose almost every single one of our firstborn dolphins because the mother, who has to be seven or eight years old before she reaches maturity, is loaded with toxins, and she takes all of those years worth of toxins and she dumps them into the baby, and they die. The mortality rate is nearly 100% on, on firstborn dolphins. From there, females live longer than males because they're dumping these toxins with every birth. So the females live 25 to 30 years. The males live 21 to 25 in the lagoon. 
outside in the ocean, they live 50 years. Our dolphins yeah. are loaded that, with that they're resistant to antibiotics. They have high nicotine levels. Uh, almost all of them have an, an AIDS-like immune system deficiency. Um, we lost a 21-year-old male named Para um, when the Okeechobee discharges uh, and, and the the discharges from um, uh, Hurricane Isaac, uh, the, the feeder band that trained on us and loaded us up. Um, 21 years old. He had uh, local mycosis, uh, which is a, a white bacterial skin disease that eats him up, um, and the lungs and the liver were impacted with um, injuries and deficiencies in their immune system. They were yes. all, all messed up. So, and, and I know you're familiar with all of this. Um, our sea turtles all have lesions on their eyes and their noses and their legs and uh, the water. So it needs to be told. People need to hear what's going on in the lagoon. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, and we're we also need to walk back the. We need to connect the dots. So, you know, the mercury that's accumulating in fish and is threatening our health, and is is harming these dolphins that they're transferring to their young. And if they get too much, they'll just become infertile. Mercury is methyl mercury, and methyl mercury is created when nitrogen from fertilizers is broken down by bacterium, right, and uh, produces. Uh, Methylmercury. So, you know, it comes back to, you know, we must not put uh, more fertilizer on than the ground can absorb, than the plants can absorb, because we don't want it getting into the water. Well, oddly, oddly enough, you know, the um, the mercury issue worldwide, and and then of course the methyl mercury, which is enormously toxic to all living creatures, central nervous systems, um, it, it's just not being talked about. No. Um, and in Florida, there are no limits. Yeah. The EP never set them. EPA just caved in. Um, right now, there are no methylmercury um, standards in the state of Florida. And there are children in South Florida that are suffering neurological problems that lead to methylmercury. Um, we're having male, male, female, female pairings of our birds. Um, they're less aggressive on the mate. They're less aggressive on the nest. They're less aggressive on the food. Hunting, and, and these are death knells for, for species. You know, if you're not property mating and if you're not taking care of your babies and you're not feeding them, then your species doesn't survive. Yeah, it's silent spring all over again. The actual average is, uh, I think, 4.6 grams per day of fish. And the EPA set their standards for mercury with that. But in Florida, we average between 46 and 52 grams per day average. Uh, the poorer you are, the more fish you eat. Right. And given EPA standards, even, we're eight times the national rate, and we're not being protected here. And with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection fighting the EPA's national standards and, and winning two days ago, um, they now get to double all of this stuff. Uh, they've created a, a, a new way to... Uh, a, a new statistical approach to uh, develop their criteria, and it is so ambiguous it can read anything. Yeah. Um, Eighty-five percent of our Class One and Class Two drinking waters are now uncovered, and, and it's and it's oh awful. my gosh. Yeah, oh, it, it's a, it's much worse than that, Doctor. Wait till you come down here and I show you this stuff. You're, you're not going to yeah. believe it. Um, and it's a nationwide issue because Florida. Because our DEP is run by agriculture and agrochemical, um, nothing has, no standards have ever been set. The federal government has had to sue us. 
they tried to enforce these things, so we turned around and counterproposed, and our governor put pressure on Washington for them to accept this. Now, all the other states that have the same issue we do, where the agricultural um, and agrochemical lobby is so strong, they get to write their own rules, too, now. So nationwide, the entire nation just got hurt really bad by what happened here in Florida. Now, of course, <clears throat> there are avenues, and we are, we are all looking into them. Uh, um, Jennifer Hecker, I know you know Jennifer, the Southwest Florida uh, Conservancy, uh, she wrote a scathing letter explaining what all of this means. Uh, um, I can send it to you. It's actually up on my Facebook page, which is easy to read. <clears throat> um, Sierra Club, Chris, she's all very interested. Uh, keeping in mind now, all five Florida waterkeepers and our parent, the Waterkeeper Alliance, have already weighed in on this. And, of course, Earth Justice is is already partnered with... Um, um, St. John's Riverkeeper in Sierra fighting about nutrient standards in another lawsuit from 2009. And Earth Justice and David Guest is suing the governor because he gave 30-year leases to these polluters uh, who are not taking care of business. And they've, Earth Justice has indicated that they would be happy to represent all of us in this because it is just such a travesty. We've we got to beat it. We, we have to. The whole Absolutely. Nation. And I want to recommend Earth Justice. They um, represented the Ocean River Institute with a commercial boat operator and a recreational fisherman to sue the government to better manage the herring stocks up here in the Northeast. Right. And we su successfully won the suit saying that, look, you guys didn't do it right. You weren't thinking ecosystem. You know, send it back and, and try to do it, you know, figure it out so that you include the foraging of the, of the herring by other, you know, by the bigger fish and stuff. So it was, you know, it was the first time that citizens spoke out to a decision being made by the fish managers saying, you guys aren't doing it right, go do it right. Um, we're going to take a short break and be back with Marty Baum from the Indian River Lagoon uh, Riverkeeper. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. My guest today is Marty Baum. The Indian River Keeper. Marty, um, again, how can people learn more about your work? Well, um, they can go to my Facebook page by um, Googling Indian River Keeper. Uh, when that pops up, uh, my, my website will also pop up in there. You can go there. Um, there are links there with my email address, my phone number, all of that stuff. Um, I'm open to, to phone calls and comments and complaints and thoughts and worries and any of that stuff. Um, I've never uh, turned down uh, an invitation to go speak. Uh, so, you know, if you're within our listing area here in the lagoon, uh, pick up a call and give me, you know, a shout, and I would be happy to come explain what's going on to the best of my ability. And, you know, getting involved. Um, I expect a lot of people will be contacting you because your, your, our talk today is so dense. There are so many points that you hit on, and we have to move on to other points because it's just such a wonderfully rich and complex estuary, the Indian River Lagoon, and there's so many things happening here that um, it's just, we could fill, you know, a number of shows on, on going into more details about different things. I do recommend your web page, and I recommend your Facebook page as well. Um, I see you have a cartoon up there by a student named Hannah that shows, some, uh, shows the governor cutting up a shark or something, and <laughs> the whole kid's going, why, Mr. Governor, what are you doing? Well, that was in response uh, to uh, an article uh, written where I commented that Governor Scott has gutted the enforcement and inspection arms of the DEP, Florida Department of Environmental Protection. Um, they fired a whole bunch of very senior inspectors and guys that had had years and years and years of experience in this, and they fired them and replaced them with people from the industries that they are expected to regulate. So, you know, they just gave the hen house over to the hungry foxes. Uh, And adding insult to injury, as you said earlier, Florida has pretty much excluded the EPA from operating in, in Florida. So it isn't like other states where you have, you know, the locals can lean on the federal expertise and stuff. There's really been a exiting of the EPA. Well, there's, that's actually one of the big problems. Um, you know, when we go to these commissions and council meetings trying to convince these people to enact a fertilizer ordinance, uh, you know, a meaningful one, um, what that means is they're, they're, as you said, they're a setback of, you know, 15 feet off, of, off the water. Um, we recommend 50% slow-release nitrogen. And we recommend uh, a blackout date, uh, somewhere between May and September, uh, depending on where you are. <clears throat> That's our rainy season, and, and what happens is uh, sometimes it's a very regular thing for us in the summertime to get a one-inch rainstorm in 30 minutes, 
that just overfloods everything, and then an hour later it's drained off. But it takes everything with it, you know, yeah. that's on the surface. So it, it's it's a tough deal. Um, the, the state won't control this stuff. Uh, they have set standards, and when we go to these meetings, um, the people from IFAS, they just keep saying, well, you know, follow the state standards. Uh, they're there for a reason. And I want to scream from the back of the room, you idiots, that's why the lagoon is collapsing, because they're following your standards, and they don't work. They right. Just- Last year, Tallahassee tried to put through a bill that would uh, train fertilizer applicators in, quote, best practices, and they would pay $75 to the state, and then they could ignore the county regulations. And one of the regulations that, you know, Martin County put through is this use at least 50% slow-release nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And people don't understand that, you know, organic and synthetic nit- uh, fertilizers, um, if they don't have slow-release, they give off much more nitrous oxide. And nitrous oxide is a gas that's 300 times more potent for climate change than is a a similar molecule of carbon dioxide. So nitrous oxide is third on the bad greenhouse gases after carbon dioxide and methane. And the only way to reduce that gassing out of fertilizer spread is this is slow-release nitrogen, the the, the 50% slow-release nitrogen. Uh, organic fertilizer has some slow releasing, but it's nowhere near 50%. It's like 10 or 20%. And the 50% is they've coated, you know, each um, nitrogen bit is coated with some sulfur or something so that it prevents it from gassing out. And if you have 100% slow release nitrogen, you would have the, the least amount of, of uh, the, your law would be doing the least damage to the climate and the global warming problems and stuff. So you it's, know, it's complicated issues. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to me, um, except that they're fighting for their profit line here, uh, because we have golf courses along the Indian River Lagoon that are zero-net polluters. Uh, they practice best management practices. Uh, they recycle their own water. Uh, they don't kill all the vegetation in their ponds. They, they, they use their ponds to, to clean their water. Uh, and they're very careful about what they discharge and how it is discharged through their own wetlands and such. So... The, Absolutely. The, so that's what we're asking of our lawn owners is to treat your yeah. lawn as well as the golf courses do. <laughs> well, the, 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 the thing with the golf courses is they don't want to spend the, the unnecessary extra dollars. They just want green, but they don't want to spend more than they need. So they're practicing these, you know, these best management practices. And, and, and then you, you have IFAS telling everybody that you can't do that because then your grass will die and it'll all wash away all your dirt into the lagoon and, Blah, 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 Sierra Club got so angry at what happened at Brevard County that they created a transcript of the IFAS scientist's testimony and countered it, sentence by sentence, um, and she did not fare well. This lady no. just, she dismissed Trenholm, Dr. Trenholm. She dismissed with a wave of her hand 20 years of data collection and research by her predecessor, saying, oh, no, 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 he had it all wrong, I have it right, this will work. We do not need blackouts. We do not need slow-release nitrogen. You know, if, if you just put the regular nitrogen on your lawn, in three weeks, it's gone. Um, it's, it's washed away or it's leached or something, but it's gone. And now your grass starts losing its deep, rich green. Slow-release, you fertilize it once, and it lasts for several months. So you're saving yourself several applications of fertilizer, and you're saving the environment. The problem right. is you can't buy it. Here, 
um, Lee and Charlotte counties, when they enacted their fertilizer ordinances, um, we kind of modeled ours here after that um, with the blackout and the slow-release nitrogen and the uh, requirement for applicators to, to take a test, you know, to prove that they understand the laws. So they, they did this over there, and they went to their Lowe's and their Home Depots, and they said, you know, these are our laws, and we want you to help us, and they did. And yes. they did. Um, the sad part of that is the commissioner over there in Lee County that enacted all of this stuff, the first thing they did was the state legislature tried to take away home rule. Agriculture went and said, oh, no, my God, you're making it too complicated. You can't ha- have all these different rules. You need to make your rule work. Well, they fought and lost that one. It, it didn't go through. But in the meantime, um, I may have reversed my numbers here, but phosphate spent $3 million and sugar spent $5 million to get him thrown out of office. It took a couple of cycles, but it, it happened. They got him. So <clears throat> this is high-dollar stuff to them. They, uh, you know, they spend millions of dollars in the state of Florida um, convincing people that they need to over-fertilize. In the meantime, half of all of our waters of, waters of body excuse me, bodies of water, are under nutrient-driven algae blooms and, and stress and collapse. Yeah, they're in really bad shape. And, yeah, um, yeah and, and the thing about, you know, the reason that they're fighting the, they fight this, taking a summer holiday from fertilizing or the ban is um, because they want you to use no slow-release nitrogen. If you use slow-release nitrogen in the spring, then you don't need to fertilize in the summer because it feeds it all the way through that period. It's like giving the kids breakfast in the morning so they get through until lunchtime. And instead, you know, and, yeah, there was something else about the... Um, well, well, you know, the nitrogen doesn't go away. If they would leave the cuttings on the ground, that yes. nitrogen and phosphorus in those blades of grass would re-enter the ecosystem right there. That's the and, best combination is to use 100% slow-release and leave, if you leave the grass cuttings, you can put down less fertilizer. And so you save money that way. Uh, and you, oh, the problem is, is that the fer- we don't want the fertilizer going into the lagoon during the summer months because that's when the lagoon is the hottest and that's when the daylight is the longest. So that's when the most algae growth happens. If fertilizer goes in, in you know, at other months, it won't be as bad to the ecosystem as it is during the summer months. Also, in Florida, you have terrible rains in the summer, so that washes it in. So, again, you want to fertilize, you know, in the spring when the water is not so receptive, the algae is not so receptive to the nutrients of the nitrogen, and when it's not going to rain off your lawn, so more will go to benefit your grass. You're exactly right, Doc. I've been told that there are, there are two limiting factors to algae growth. One is length of sunlight and, and strength, and the other one is hydrogen. Now, yeah. in the northern lagoon, with half of all the, the lagoon bottom now empty of seagrass, it is exposed to turbidity. Every time the wind blows, the waves pick that stuff oh up, and all of that legend pollution re-enters the water column. Now, keeping in mind here, from Vero South, we have a three-week turnover in our water column. Three weeks. 100% turnover with the ocean. In yeah. the northern lagoon, with only the Sebastian Inlet up there, north of Vero, more than a year. So everything they put in the water stays in the water until it either enters the, uh, the, the sediment layers or it enters the organisms, one or the other. It just doesn't go away. 
Right, you're a sea beside the sea. It's not the open ocean when you stand at the lagoon edge. It's a closed, nearly closed system. Yeah, and it's remarkable good, how long things stay in there. We, we do not have very good flush in the lagoon. Uh, we're, we're very poor on flush. You know, and, and that, that hurts us. Uh, and there's no, there's no effective way to open up the northern end of the lagoons to create the, the north-south flushing that we get with the St. Lucie and the Fort Persimmons. Because, you know, of course, you understand how that works. Yeah. The Baylor Southeast Breeze creates a heavy incoming, heavy outgoing uh, at opposite ends, and it flushes the stuff out nice and clean. So they're not getting that up there. And, you know, the biofeedback is starting to, to happen. Um, it is happening, and of course you don't want too much flushing because then the seagrass wouldn't be so lush and stuff, and you know the rose-headed spoonbills wouldn't be so happy and stuff. So it's especially it's a carefully balanced system, and it's totally being wrecked. And it's it's dynamic, and I'm and I'm optimistic, Doc. Um, okay. as, a, as a historian, um, you know, there I probably have a, one of the most a unique. Um, perspective amongst advocates. My family's been on the lagoon since 1868, and I am I am probably one of the leading authorities on the history of the lagoon uh, up until the time the railroad gets here. I once a railroad gets here, pioneer days are over, and I lose interest. But ah. um, truly, but um, you know that's the beginning of our, our anthropologic changes, and I'm well versed on those. Uh, you know, you've read the uh, Nathaniel Osborne uh, thesis, uh, Oranges and Inlets, that I sent you. Yeah, that's uh, fabulous. Origins and Inlets, yeah, by yeah. Osborne. So, yeah, and that did a real jam-up job on that. So, at any rate, all of these things just, just add up to it being a mess up there. And the the, the fact that it, it takes several years for anything to happen, um, you know, it just, it's going to make things miserable. Uh, people are going to think it's hopeless and whatnot, but it's not. When we When we opened up, the St. Lucie Inlet in 1892, um, and kept it open by keeping it dredged. Yeah. Uh, the same year that happened, um, Senator Quay from Pennsylvania, who had a, a winter home directly across from the Indian River Inlet, he spent $15,000 to straighten out and deepen the Indian River Inlet. He wanted to see out of it. So the Indian River Lagoon will not support, naturally, two inlets. There's not enough outgoing water to flush the, the sand. Um, we Marty, have... We're running out of time. I'm going to have to cut you off there. Okay. Um, and, um, and just, you know, we've got like a 30 seconds left. So um, If they get in touch with me um, at my website, they'll find my phone number, my email, all that stuff. Get in touch. I'll answer any questions. Uh, you know, um, yes, Facebook is uh, Indian, one word, second word, Riverkeeper. And there you are, and um, I highly recommend you communicate with Marty. He's a font of information. He will instantly send you all kinds of references and, and things to learn more about. Um, Marty Baum, Indian Riverkeeper, thank you so much. Thank you, Doctor. I appreciate it very, very much. It's fascinating. I will try to put up next week uh, more uh, uh, tales of fishing and, and fish because that's something that really shone through your talk today about you know, how important it is to understand the dynamics of, of that special ecosystem. So, once again, thank you for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues.
Thanks, Doc. Next time you're in town, let's get together. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Rock, rock, rock.